Hi, my name's Gail Gillen, and I'm the host of Queer Identities in Horror Media, exploring gender and sexuality through monsters. I would like to give a quick warning at the top of the podcast to let everyone know that this podcast does use some terms from queer theory that might be upsetting or triggering to viewers. Please proceed with caution, and if you need, there's a transcription that you can access in the link of the bio. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy. In the beginning, there were folk tales. Warnings of things that go bump in the night, men that harm other men, stories told within families and religious spaces to explain the afterlife or to teach morals and lessons. But fear is a fluid thing. Fear changes as people change and horror mirrors what society fears. Monsters emerge from the dark of the human mind and demons, witches, vampires, werewolves, and ghosts become the images of fear. It is in the 15th century that man and monster begin to combine. For example, the vampire Dracula, who is traced back to the Prince of Wallachia, Vlad III. The monster is Bluebeard, who is said to have been inspired by the alleged serial killer Giles de Reyes. And Elizabeth Bathory's murders began the motif of the vampiress and ushered in the emergence of horror fiction in the 18th century. In this series, we will explore the way that horror talks about gender and sexuality as an aspect of fear and the monstrous by examining classical and contemporary horror in literature and in films. I'm your host, Gail Gillen, and I've been reading, watching, and studying horror in its different forms combined with exploring queer theory and, most interestingly of all, looking at their overlap. I began this journey with the question of how queer representation has evolved in horror, and while representation has changed more than anything, I found that the base fear of queerness remains the same. This episode we will be looking at three classical horror texts, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, and Dracula by Bram Stoker. All three of these well-known novels have had tremendous impact on the horror and gothic genre, and can even be found paired by publishers into classical horror collections. So let's dive in and see what these texts have to reveal. We begin with one of my personal favorites, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, was written in 1818, and while the novel is categorized as being gothic and has themes that connect to romanticism, it is also often seen as one of the first published works of science fiction. Frankenstein is a novel which has been attributed to several meanings as the themes of nature versus nurture within Shelley's novel allow for a wide array of interpretations. One such of these interpretations is the critique of men creating life, as rearing children is traditionally a feminine action. This interpretation is mostly seen in radical feminist views and truly excludes transgender people as well as looking past the much more blatant points Shelley is trying to make. The characters within Frankenstein, interestingly, are connected by their masculinity and the ways in which they do not conform to the traditional and societal norms for masculinity. Robert Walton himself is running away from his failures in society, by attempting to discover and explore new portions of the North Pole. Victor Frankenstein leaves behind his family and his beloved bride-to-be in order to experiment and create a new man who he originally intends to be the perfect man. Frankenstein's monster is a highly intelligent man who's capable of extremely complex communication and thought processes, but has been rejected by society due to his physical appearance. 
All three men are highly ambitious, yet are held back by society from pursuing what they desire the most. To call upon Susan Stryker's piece, My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix, Performing Transgender Rage, Originally a performance piece given at the California State University Conference, Rage Across the Disciplines, in 1993. Frankenstein's monster's experience is one closely linked to that of transgender people in modern society. Stryker says, the transsexual body is an unnatural body. It is the product of medical science. It is a technological construction. It is flesh torn apart and sewn together again in a shape other than that in which it was born. Just like the monster is feared because of his unnatural appearance and creation, so are trans people in modern society. Medical intervention is seen as unnatural and torture by the majority of cisgendered society. Stryker continues on her point by bringing forward the idea of transgender rage, which is sourced from the ingrained hatred and exclusion faced within queer communities and generalized society. As Stryker points out, she is not the first person to make this comparison between the monster and trans identities. In Boundary Violation and the Frankenstein Phenomenon, Mary Daly compares transgender people to the monster as she says that transsexuals are the agent of nephrophilic invasion of female spaces. Stryker, however, suggests that just as Frankenstein fears the monster as a reflection of his own evils and desires, so have those who fear the transitioning of transgendered people. Stryker continues to critique the queer community's treatment of transgender people. At the historical moment of Stryker's writing, and even still in our own contemporary moment, transgender people face verbal and physical violence on a regular basis, which leads to high levels of depression in the trans community, as well as making trans people especially vulnerable to relying on sex work and drug use or becoming unhoused, assaulted, and even killed. Stryker throws their hatred back in their face and says, when such beings as these tell me I war with nature, I find no more reason to mourn my opposition to them or to the order that they claim to represent than Frankenstein's monster felt in its enmity to the human race. I do not fall from the grace of their company. I roar gleefully away from it like a Harley straddling, dildo-packing leather dyke from hell. This is a line that fills me with joy as Stryker pulls on the heartstrings of everyone who has ever felt even the smallest amount of transgender rage. Stryker examines Peter Brook's suggestion in his essay, What is a Monster According to Frankenstein, where he states that whatever else a monster might be, it may also be that which eludes gender definition. And within her examination, Stryker finds just how closely society grasped gender for comfort. Frankenstein's monster is only so scary because he has free will and will not force himself to hide from his maker who condemns what he has made himself. Stryker says, like the monster, I could speak from my earliest memories and how I became aware of my difference from everyone around me. I can describe how I acquired a monstrous identity by taking on the label transsexual to name parts of myself that I could not otherwise explain. I, too, have discovered the journals of men who made my body and who have made the bodies of creatures like me since the 1930s.
In this passage, Stryker calls in again the comparison of modern gender-affirming surgery to the creation of Frankenstein's monster and how choosing to rebel, to be queer, is to choose to be a monster in the eyes of others. Stryker gives her audience an answer for dealing with the monstrous identity society has passed on to trans people. She says that we should proudly accept our monstrosity. Stryker speaks to the trans community saying, as we rise up from the operating tables of our rebirth, we transsexuals are something more, more arid, something other than the creature our makers intended us to be. Stryker makes us into the monster of Frankenstein's narrative, the creation who has free will. We choose to be monsters who pull back from the hands of their creator and say, you have created me, yet you dared to hate me. I find it appropriate to quote Susan Schreiker, who says, Hearken unto me, fellow creatures, I who have dwelt in a form unmatched with my desire, I whose flesh has become an assemblage of incongruous atomical parts, I who achieve the similitude of natural body only through an unnatural process. I offer you this warning. The nature you bedevil me with is a lie. Do not trust it to protect you from what I represent, for it is a fabrication that cloaks the groundlessness of the privilege you seek to maintain for yourself at my expense. You are as constructed as me. The same anarchic womb has birthed us both. I call upon you to investigate your nature as I have been compelled to confront mine. I challenge you to risk abjection and flourish as well as I have. Heed my words, and you may well discover the seams and sutures in yourself. To now move away from the original text itself, let's look at some of the contemporary film that has been generated by the Frankenstein tale. The modern image of Frankenstein's monster is heavily connected to the 1931 American film directed by James Whale. James Whale directed this film and several other famous horror films as an openly gay man, and I believe that Whale played with queer relationships and gender presentation in his version of Frankenstein, and particularly in his following sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster was played by Boris Karloff, and his thick platform boots, heavy brow, and wide shoulders are often seen replicated in queer fashion and queer art. After the original success of the film, many sequels and spin-offs were to follow, and the image of the mad scientist and his cowering assistant became a popular film stereotype. In 1974, a popular parody of Wales' Frankenstein films was released. Young Frankenstein, directed by Mel Brooks and starring Gene Wilder, plays into the German expressionism and 1930s acting styles that Wales used to make a campy comedy which later becomes a hit musical. Young Frankenstein was followed closely by the horror comedy musical The Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975. The Rocky Horror Picture Show was originally a musical first performed in 1973 and was produced as a tribute to B-horror films of the 1930s through 1960s. The costumes, makeup, and music of Rocky Horror are directly reflective of punk and queer styles of the 70s. Rocky Horror became a cult classic shortly after its release and drew in the attention of the queer community and became a staple of queer media. There is a multitude of modern Frankenstein retellings, including movies, plays, songs, books, and more. But what keeps drawing me back to Frankenstein as a queer person is all of the possibilities Shelley incorporates into her writing and just how beautifully she represents multiple forms of societal rebellion. The age-old tale of creator versus creation did not begin with Frankenstein, but Shelley's novel is what truly brings this theme into popular culture. 
The second novel we are touching on is Dracula by Bram Stoker, which was written in 1897. To begin talking about Dracula, it's important to start by looking at Stoker himself. The writing of Dracula began one month after Stoker's close friend and fellow Gothic writer Oscar Wilde was imprisoned for homosexuality. Stoker is widely thought to have been a closeted gay or bisexual man even as he was married to a woman. Several letters were sent between Stoker and other men, such as previously mentioned Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman, which include suggestions of romantic and sexual attraction to men. In Dracula, homosocial desire is threaded throughout a majority of the narrative. Jonathan Harker cannot seem to resist Dracula, and neither can many of the other characters. The concept of homosocial desire was pioneered by Eve Sedgwick in her book titled Between Men, where she delves into how literature and society depict and define homosocial versus homosexual relationships. Sedgwick defines homosocial desire as separate from the traditional definition of homosocial relationships as she is focusing on the erotic aspect of the connections between men as homosocial was originally used to separate platonic and sexual male relationships with the intent to alienate the sexual desire for men within other men. We see aspects of homosocial desire within Dracula, especially through the relationship between Dracula and Renfield. Because Renfield is so entirely committed to serving Dracula, we see him submitting to Dracula physically and mentally, leaving him feminized, as Sedgwick would say. Sedgwick focuses in Chapter 3 of Between Men on the act of cuckolding as a form of intense social desire. Sedgwick claims that Cuckolding allows men to trade their wives between each other as if they were property, and that doing so either allows men to further their homosocial relationships and receive approval from their fellow man, or the man unintentionally becomes cuckolded, which feminizes and weakens the man's social strengths. There are a few scenes within Dracula that play with this idea, such as the blood transfusion Mina has to be given by all of the men who are fighting Dracula, which Harker is never informed of and alludes to sex through the sharing of blood, the same way that the taking of blood by Dracula is seen as sexual in nature. Sedgwick also directly addresses the inclusion of homosocial desire within the Gothic novel in Chapter 5 of Between Men, where she says that the Gothic was the first form of novel to clearly link to male homosexuality. Sedgwick claims almost all classic horror follows the same build and says each novel is about one or more males who not only is persecuted by, but considers himself transparent to, and often under the compulsion of, another male. If, like Cedric claims, these men are all under external and internal pressures to conform, these men are all falling to the homophobia that is inherently linked to the patriarchal rules of the world around them. Transgender American academic writer Jack Halberstam writes his thoughts on Dracula in his piece Technologies of Monstrosity, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Halberstam brings to light the anti-Semitic nature of Stoker's depiction of the vampire, but also points out how, within the Gothic, all marginalized people become the monster of the story. Halberstam writes, The vampire Dracula represents all of these figures, economically condensing their sexual threat into one noticeably feminized, wildly fertile, and seductively perverse body. Dracula creeps face down the wall of the very fortress of identity. He is the boundary, he is the one who crosses, and the one who knows the other. Showing the fluid nature of Dracula's physical form becomes a comment on the changing shape of what society fears. Halberstam talks extensively about the impact of othering within the gothic genre and says, Othering in gothic fiction scavenges from many discursive fields and makes monsters out of bits and pieces of science and literature. 
Gothic monsters are overdetermined and open, therefore, to numerous interpretations, precisely because they transform the fragments of otherness into one body. That body is not female, not Jew, is not homosexual, but it bears the mark of the constructions of femininity, race, and sexuality. Haberstam is making a point that I've seen across the board within Gothic and horror media, which is the ability for the monster to apply to a wide scopes of identities within the othered. Haberstam also looks into the sexuality of the vampire and says, Vampire sexuality blends power and femininity within the same body and then marks that body as distinctly alien. Dracula is a perverse and multiple figure because he transforms pure and virginal women into seductresses, producing sexuality through their willing bodies. The vampire builds a sexuality centered around robbing others of life force and purity, such as Lucy, who is transformed from the virginal Englishwoman into a terrifying killer of children. The others take sexual delight in her defeat, taking multiple enthusiastic precautions. Even Mina's feminine and maternal instincts are changed, as she metaphorically is breastfed Dracula's blood in the scene where Stoker writes, Her nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the bare breast which is shown by his torn open dress. Even the end of the novel, as Mina is revealed to have had a child, connects to the sexual relationship she experienced, as it is not entirely clear whose child it is, and the child was named after all of the men who fought for her and transfused blood with herself. Almost all of the men who could be the child's father beside the Count himself. Halberstam says, The appeal of the Gothic text, then, particularly lies in its uncanny power to reveal mechanisms of monster production. The monster, in its otherworldly form, in its supernatural shape, wears the traces of its own construction. Like the bolt through the neck of Frankenstein's monster in the modern horror film, the technology of monstrosity is written upon the body, and the artificiality of the monster denaturalizes, in turn, the humanness of his enemies. Halberstam calls forward ideas similar to Stryker's on Frankenstein that the mark of the monster is evidence of their creation. This idea connects solidly to the idea of queer flagging and that minority groups are separated from generalized society by their physical appearance. The scars left from queerness are proof of monstrosity to society. Similar to Frankenstein's film fame, Dracula was developed into a multitude of popular films. The first popular Dracula film was the 1922 silent German expressionist film Nosferatu, which was an unofficial adaptation of Stoker's novel. Nosferatu was the first film to depict a vampire dying by sunlight exposure, while past novels had only shown them being uncomfortable or weakened in light. Shortly after, in 1931, Universal Studios released Dracula, a horror film officially linked to Bram Stoker's novel and the first sound film adaption of Stoker's novel itself. The 1931 film starred the famous horror actor Bela Lugosi as the iconic depiction of Dracula, and created a handsome and charming image of Dracula for popular media that's impact is still seen today in adaptations of the vampire film. Dracula is a novel that has strengthened the power of the appealing monster, a monster that cannot be resisted and that at first look cannot be recognized as a monster. The vampire relies on sex, danger, and society's unwillingness to believe in the supernatural to thrive, making the other to look like monsters lying in wait for openings to steal away the precious life force of what society regards as good people. While I don't have nearly as much to talk about in Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, The Mysterious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
I still feel that the themes within the novella are important to touch on, as they pull from the same place as Frankenstein and Dracula. Stevenson wrote Jekyll and Hyde in 1886, and since then, it has had a great impact on the gothic genre, as well as popular culture itself. Jekyll and Hyde is a tale that examines the differences between the private and public life of people, and also pulls from Freud's ideas of the id, ego, and superego. Throughout the novel, Stevenson draws out the suspension of who or what Mr. Hyde is, and like Dracula, makes him into an unknown and othered being who is seemingly human. It is not until the last chapter that the readers truly get a full scope of the story as told by Henry Jekyll. Jekyll's narration is one that begins in youth by hiding his inner desires and feeling as though he has two extreme moral sides within himself. The dueling sides of Jekyll are deeply reminiscent of the hiding and shame that surround internal homophobia and transphobia, and instead of giving into his desires, he creates an entirely different man within himself who acts out all of the cruel deeds Jekyll secretly wants to do. When Jekyll describes turning into Hyde for the first time, he says, There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new and, from its novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in my body. Within I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation, an unknown but not an innocent freedom from the soul. Antonio Sana writes on the aspect of late Victorian homophobia within his piece, Silent Homosexuality and Oscar Wilde's Telony and the Picture of Dorian Gray and Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sana looks into how the political aspects of Victorian views on homosexuality affected Stevenson and Wilde's writings. Sana explains how the late Victorian society described homosexuality as an illness and threatened homosexual people to not indulge in any form of physical contact. Furthermore, Sana believes that Stevenson intentionally was representing homosexual men in his narrative through characterizing his protagonist as being concerned with social and legal punishment, as well as having the protagonist never stop committing sins or crimes that caused said concern. Sana says, In a certain way, Jekyll is ashamed of such pleasures and desires, thus partly agreeing with the society that abhors them. He apparently suffers a sense of guilt for his double life. Could we not argue that his duplicit life is a representation of the double life many homosexual men were obliged to conduct in the last decade of the 19th century? Pointing out the duality that Stevenson so heavily relies on in his characterization of the monster of his story, Hyde. Sana also writes on the Victorian concept of the unspeakable act, a term used in reference to acts of homosexuality which was described as a subject that should not have been mentioned because it was not officially recognized as part of the status quo because it was seen as both immoral and awful. The unspeakable nature of Jekyll's sins are never fully named and are committed mainly in secret and silence, leading him to be ultimately consumed by his desire and guilt, so much so that he commits suicide as he's no longer able to hide his inner self from society. Stevenson's The Mysterious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a novel that showcases the fears of late Victorian society and the ways morality was a driving force of social approval. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and keep an eye out for a second episode of Queer Identities and Horror Media where we'll be looking at Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Stephen King's Carrie.